My name is Dylan, and you are listening to episode number 39 of the Animals at Home podcast. Well, happy New Year's to everybody listening. I hope you had a good holiday season. It is good to be back. I hope you had a chance to listen to the bonus episode that was released last week. If you haven't, I highly recommend going to check it out. We've been extremely happy with the reception that it's got as well as the feedback that we've been getting. This article, uh, this was an article that was written by myself, but really it was myself, Mariah from Reptophiles and Paul from Custom Reptile Habitats that did all the legwork on this. We kind of worked together and put our heads together on this one. So between the three of us, we've been super ecstatic the way the the people that have been responding to it. It's been super, super positive. And, and this is the direction we want to see the reptile industry head. So if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, definitely go back to last week, listen to that episode. It's just, it's just a solo episode with myself, basically reading an article that I had written. But again, I had a ton of help from both Mariah and Paul. So again, thank you so much. If you listened to it, thank you. A ton of you guys were sharing it. I super, we're really, really appreciative for that because we do want to get this message around and there's some more seriously exciting things to come sort of in that same domain. So keep an eye open for that. If you are enjoying the content produced at Animals at Home and you're looking for a way to support the show, you can share it on social media. You can go to iTunes and give it a five-star rating or leave a written review. You can go to Animals at home.ca slash shop and pick yourself up a sweater or a t-shirt. $5 for every clothing item does automatically get donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy, which is a Canadian charity that protects sections of the Amazon rainforest in Peru. And finally, you can go check out customreptilehabitats.com, which is the official sponsor of the podcast. There's always links in the show notes and the description. If you do end up purchasing something, I do get a small commission come back to me to help me produce the show. There is everything you need in terms of reptile care on custom reptile habitats. There's some seriously big names on YouTube and in the reptile industry that have been starting to use their products. And you'll just have to go check out the website to see how awesome these enclosures look with these really cool 3D backgrounds and these PVC enclosures that pack flat and the whole nine yards. So definitely go check them out. Again, links are in the show notes. So on today's episode of the podcast, there are two new things that I've never done before. The first is I'm having a repeat guest who I've had before. And this is the first interview where I've interviewed two people at once. So I'm super excited to announce I'm having Peter Amelia and Carrie Kish of the Reptelligence team on the podcast. Of course, episode number 27 featured Peter originally. That was an awesome conversation. I actually highly recommend going to listen to that first and then coming back to that one because that one gives you just a little bit of different information. It might give you a little more solid foundation on what we're talking about in this one. As you can see, it's a long episode. There were three of us chatting, so it's easy to burn up two hours having a great conversation. Now, if you're not familiar with what Reptelligence is, they are one of the only online entities that I'm aware of that is actively teaching people how to enrich the lives and train their reptiles at home. Now, training reptiles is something that's often made fun of. You know, there's so many different myths that it can't be done. Peter and Carrie are really turning all of those myths on their head. Now, I want to jump right into the episode, but here are a few of the things that we discuss over the next two hours. We discuss animal training in general. Removing reptiles from the equation, what does animal training mean? Training dogs, training birds, just the basic terms and understanding of how an animal can learn how to, or how a trainer can learn to shape animal behavior. Then we discuss what that means in terms of reptiles. How can that be done with reptiles? They share a bunch of different stories about how they've done it with the reptiles in their care. And then at the end of the episode, we leave everyone with a few skills and tools that you can start doing today to help A, enrich the life of your reptile, or B, actually start training and working with your reptile and start shaping their behavior if that is something you're interested in doing. Enjoy the show. 
Well, I am joined by the Reptelligence crew, Peter and Carrie. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, Dylan. This is great. Peter, you are the first repeat guest of the Animals at Home podcast history. So that is great. I'm super excited to have you yes. back. And you I, know, I want a t-shirt. Yeah, I know. I should, <laughs> I should send you a shirt. First repeat guest. And I actually, I get a lot of messages about the podcast. I think we released it, was it in June or, or May, episode number 27. I get a ton of messages about that. People really enjoyed that episode. People okay. listen to it over and over again because they feel like they can continue to get content out of it. And even myself, when I finished when I finished re-listening it to myself, I was like, oh my gosh, I have so many more questions that I feel like I could have asked that I didn't think of in the moment. So I'm super happy to have you both on and we can chat about everything to do with uh, you know training animals. Maybe we can start with just a, a quick intro from each of you. So maybe Peter, you can just start. Just where? How did you get start? How did you start working with animals, and what led you to the training background or to training animals? Yeah. So um, yeah, I kind of delved that in, into that a lot in the last one. So basically, um, animals like have been a part of my whole life um, the whole time. Um, literally since I was born, there were animals in the room because I was born at home, and. Uh, and then, um, like my parents weren't really into exotics. Like they had had a few birds in the past, but like certainly not how I would keep birds. <laughs> um, just kind of like casual budgies or uh, what a lot of people call parakeets. And um, so then I got into raptors, so birds of prey. And then, um, as it turns out, uh, parrots are much more accessible <laughs> than raptors. Um, and so I moved into parrots, which turned into all sorts of birds. And um, I've been training um, and learning and progressing and getting better as time goes on um, with positive reinforcement based least intrusive training methods um, since I was about 11 um, or maybe younger. I was trying to do the math the other day because I re-listened to the podcast too because I was like, okay, what did I say? Don't repeat yourself or whatnot. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I started when I was about 11 or so and then um, have really delved in, learned a lot of the wrong way to do things and learned a lot of the better way. Um, and then more recently have really delved into the science of it um, because um, I want to like take my training and like my ability to teach it to other people to the next level and want to be able to say, here's a research paper that proves me right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's where I met. I'm still doing a lot of bird training. And then um, I've had reptiles since I was 15. I still have my snake, um, my first snake, Latoa. She's a Me Northern Mexican pine snake. She's the best. Um, she's actually kind of one of our reptiligent success stories which we can talk about if we want to. Um, and so when I met Carrie, um, it's been, it's actually only been a year. Um, we met and started talking in November um, and we've really, um, become best friends. If you'd agree, Carrie, we talk enough to be best friends. Um, and started the whole reptilogist journey. And here I am talking about reptiles. Just great. So Carrie, maybe you can give a little bit of your background on, on your sort of animal story and then also jump into where reptilogence came from and started from. Cause I think you were one of the founding people that started that, that program. Yeah. Um, I actually was, a, started out as a dog trainer, but I mean, I grew up kind of like Peter, I grew up with a lot of animals in a pretty rural area. Um, started training dogs when I was about 20 years old, right out of college. I kind of fell into it. Um, didn't know what I was doing at all. 
but dogs are very forgiving. <laughs> not to say it's an easy job because it's not. It, you can constantly learn to get better and better. So I kind of did that. I learned to get better and better. Um, in uh, 2009, I want to say, 2008, 2009, I adopted a quote-unquote aggressive dog, right? And up to this time, I had not um, taken on any sort of serious behavior issues. I was literally just doing obedience, training for commercials, like not easy stuff, but mechanics heavy stuff, just training, not getting into a lot of um, other types of behavior modification. So I adopted this dog uh, and he turned out to be pretty fear aggressive. And so I kind of had to change my whole mindset of, oh, once a dog is aggressive, they can't come back from that. Like just that's just the label that they live with. And I really started learning more about how behavior works and how to change behavior and how to do it in ethical ways and without the use of a lot of force and punishment. Um, Cause I would have considered myself a positive, mostly positive trainer, but it kind of was, okay, I'm going to use positive methods until they don't work. <laughs> and then I'm going to use something else. And so really learning how all those things worked instead of just, kind of applying tools without a lot of that background knowledge was really helpful. And then I got into mostly doing fear and aggression work. Then um, I thought, you know what would be cool? Cause I'm kind of always learning, always curious. Like, I should go work at a zoo so I can learn to be a better dog trainer. And then I'll come back to dog training. So I never really completely left training, but I ended up going down and working at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. I don't want to sound flippant about that. Like, oh, yeah, I just like told him I was ready and walked in. <laughs> like, it wasn't like that. But um, I got a position there, worked through some different positions while I was there, um, was able to do a lot of loan opportunities and really got kind of heavy into the animal ambassador programs. So using animals for education and one thing that really struck out to me coming from sort of this heavy behavior modification world with dogs was when you go it not and this is not to speak bad about anything and things have come a long way since i was there but there was a lot of training and enrichment for birds and mammals and sort of these um what we would consider more intelligent or more charismatic species and then the reptiles didn't get a whole, whole lot <laughs> and so it was really, I expect, I guess I had some expectations and perceptions going into the zoo that, oh, you know, everything gets this. It's like, I felt like that's the message that came. And so when I realized that wasn't the case, then I was like, uh, and I was getting these messages of, oh, well, they're just reactive. They, they don't really think too much and they don't need a lot. And so I was, I went online and I'm like, well, surely someone is training reptiles. Right? So I can find, I go looking for articles. And there's, there was a little, there's some snake uh, research, like actual science heavy research projects. Um, there was not a lot of enrichment stuff at that time that I could find. And when you're working in a big kind of more corporate facility, they want to see precedent. They want to see, show us someone else who's doing it and then we'll try it. Right. And I, I can't speak that that's the way it still was, but, but that's the way it was. And so kind of the goal in starting Reptelligence was well, let's start to establish some precedent. Let's show things that work. And kind of the next goal was let's, and surely there's people doing this. It's just not out here. So let's connect all of us somehow. Let's network. 
because if we're talking to each other, we're going to get better. And so that was kind of the founding. So that I, I founded Reptelligence with Alex Knold, uh, who was my coworker at the Safari Park, probably less than a year after I started at the Safari Park. And then um, went on to work, do some work at the Reptile House San Diego Zoo. And then finally left SDZ Global and went down to Palm Desert to work at the Living Desert Zoo, where they actually had a dedicated reptile show. How cool is that? That's but again, awesome. it kind of came down to, okay, we're training some of the reptiles. Like the tortoises have behavior. They target around the station. The lizards have behavior. They can go in and out of their crate and rise up, and uh, they know some cues. And then we hold the snake. And here's the snake. And it's like, gosh, can't we do better than this? And so... Um, when we first started doing stuff with Reptelligence, I literally just wanted to show that snakes had learning. So I would put them through different setups and time it and see if they could get faster each time. It actually got faster phenomenally fast, which I've also seen in target training. They seem to pick up really fast, um, which might maybe it's part of that efficiency and wanting to do things as most efficient possible being ectotherm. Um. So having kind of established, okay, they're definitely remember, have memory and learning and reinforcement history. So um, kind of from there, we started crate training and doing some other fun things at the Living Desert. And then um, right now, kind of going through some life changes. So I'm kind of focusing on um, kind of taking a step back. I'm kind of a little bit more behind the scenes with Reptelligence, uh, focusing more on um, yeah, really behind the scenes. And I'm doing some more teaching stuff and speaking stuff. And right now we are, we're really focused, would you say, Peter, on increasing behavioral diversity, I would say, is a big part of what we like to see. And continuing to bring people together and really working hard too, which is sometimes the bigger part of it in not letting us, uh, because I, we're such a small group still, even at, I think, at, what are we at, five, five or 6,000? Um, we can't have divisiveness. We can't be, you know, getting into these huge arguments over small things. Uh, really, I think there's a lot that we can still learn from each other, even as we're starting to perfect things and nail things down more and move forward. So really trying to stay cohesive and positive from a human perspective is a big part of what we're doing um, and inclusive. And that's hard when you have a, a huge, we have everything from brand new beginner person that just went to the reptile store and got a whatever to people that have been keeping animals for 40 or 50 years. And it's like bringing these people together and having productive conversation um, and, and gaining something from both perspectives, because I think that there's really a lot to be gained from both. Yeah. It's interesting. Like as We've, we've talked about before that this training reptiles is not a new thing, but somehow you guys are still a trailblazer in the hobby because it's not really in the hobby yet. You know, it's in the sort of, there's academic material regarding this, but in terms of people with pets, it's not on the front of their mind that this is even a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've, I think I'm starting to see that change too. Um, and also, I think that 
one thing that's really important for getting some of the people who have been in the um, hobby or industry for a really long time is they want something, oftentimes, um, they want something a little different than the people who just went and got a bearded dragon, right? Bearded, the people who typically just went and got a bearded dragon, they want um, like their dragon to like cuddle with them and um, play and all that kind of thing. Whereas I think sometimes people who have been at it longer and have a really huge learning history with one set of information are more interested in, well, show me why I need to do this. I've been successful for this long. Why do I need to change? Um, And I think I am seeing a a change in that. And um, totally, as Carrie was saying, just showing that people actually are doing it. And um, that's another reason that Carrie and I both believe in like a lot of science behind it. Right. Um, We want to, we want to be able to back up what we're doing and um, science is, as far as we're concerned, kind of the way to do that. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. And so, so let's talk about some of this training. I think one of the easiest ways to start with this is to almost remove reptiles from the equation to begin with and just talk about what animal, just sort of the basics of animal training, especially the positive reinforcement that you guys are using with, with most of your, the animals you have. So Peter, maybe you could just give a brief description of what operant conditioning is. And, and then we'll kind of get into some, maybe some examples, even using the, your birds to stay away from the reptiles to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually kind of a good point. Sometimes it's a little bit more um, palatable. initially. Yeah. So um, first off, big question. Great question. Uh, so one thing to remember is that um, operant learning and operant conditioning um, is only part of the situation. Um, there's a lot of other aspects to it that play in and they can't necessarily be separated. Um, they're always happening simultaneously. Um, sometimes we, I think I could, I could make the argument that sometimes one is more prevalent than the other at certain situations. Um, but it's just worth remembering that there's always all of it happening at the same time. So the, um, I should have the definition right here, but I don't. <laughs> um, the, uh, when it comes to operant conditioning, basically the operant, uh, operant conditioning is, uh, was initiated or at least talked a lot about by B.F. Skinner. So if anyone has heard of the Skinner box um, or um, or even just B.F. Skinner, um, where he had the rats or the pigeons in the in the in a box, and he basically what he did is he shaped behavior by giving them reinforcement. So when they did, and reinforcement is anything that increases the behavior. So um, the functional definition of reinforcement is you can't actually say this is reinforcing unless you see and can prove that behavior happened more afterwards. Right. Um, and punishment is the opposite, right? Punishment means the behavior decreased. Um, and when I'm saying punishment, I'm not saying punishment from the standpoint of like spanking your kid. Um, I'm saying it from the standpoint of behavior decreased in frequency or stopped altogether. Um, so, so those two are really important for um, uh, for the aspect of operant um, conditioning and learning. So basically, what Skinner did was uh, was they wanted the pigeon to click or peck this lever. So what they did, and then they had a little machine that um, offered a, a pee or something um, else reinforcing um, that they wanted, typically food. Um, 
And so when the pigeon would, like a first approximation would be the pigeon would look in the direction of the tab and then the um, machine would open up and they would get food and then it would close back. So then they would maybe wait for it to do that again. Um, and then it went from a head look to a head look and a lean and then food came out, right? So then they went from a head look, their head look to a lean to a weight shift in the back foot or, or something like that until the feet started to move closer and closer to it, right? Because in order to peck the thing from over here, what are the behaviors that have to happen in order for that to be successful? So they just broke it down as small as they possibly could um, until the behavior had been completed, the goal behavior. Um, and a lot of times the, uh, the bird is doing the approximation just by fluke, right? And then it's starting to learn that it's being reinforced by, you know, looking one way. Initially, yeah. Um, and, and that's when, that's when being a really precise with your mechanics comes in. Um, if your rate of reinforcement, which means how frequently they get the food, um, starts to drop, you start to see slower progression in learning and more behavior that we would define as accidental. Um, so if, and they, and they did this with mice and they found that if like, let's say they trained or they wanted them to click the lever or step on the lever, what they would do is, um, one thing to test that is they would click the lever, wait 10 seconds, offer food, right? So if it wasn't quick enough or frequent enough, they found that these mice never made the connection that touching that was what produced food. It only took about 10 seconds. Now, to be fair, 10 seconds is kind of a long time. It might not seem like it, but it's kind of a long time. Um, and so you, you want your reinforcement to be as immediate as possible. But what that also shows is that it matters how frequently they are being reinforced as well. Um, so I, I think that's kind of, um, and, and let me delve into classical conditioning really quick. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when they're both happening. So we have operant and then we have classical or um, uh, classical conditioning, operant um, conditioning, operant behavior, respondent behavior. So that's where Pavlov comes in. So uh, the whole thing of bell, food, bell, food, bell, food with his dogs, um, the respondent was basically an involuntary behavior that happened because the bell meant food, they would start to salivate. So, so basically that's, that's the part that's always happening. Um, we tend to focus more on operant because operant like is how we build more behavior, I would argue. Um, but it's, but respondents always happening and, and it's worth at least knowing it's there. Right. Cause you want the operant obviously deals with the voluntary behavior, which is in training basically. I mean, you're not left with too many options if you're just dealing with involuntary behaviors. Right. You can't, you can't really. And that's one of the things that um, proves that you can train snakes is and, and reptiles in general is that they don't, um, they don't only behave like classically. They don't only because, because we can prove that, Hey, look, we're building this behavior. We're shaping it. I mean, they did the studies on the vipers that increase with accuracy of striking um, as they age. 
Um, and for me, I would say it's not even as they, as they age, I would say it's just learning history, right? So if they were only involuntary, they would never change their behavior or they would never get better. Right. That makes sense. So, so just really quick, can we, can you guys explain the difference between positive and negative reinforcement? Cause obviously I know that reptelligence is all about positive reinforcement and some people, I'm, I'm sure most people have heard the difference, but maybe don't understand the difference or why it's important. Or is there research that shows positive is better? Maybe Carrie can jump in on this one. Yeah. So with negative reinforcement, um, typically you're, there's, there's a pressure involved. It's like driving past the police car and you slow down because you feel pressure to slow down. Whereas positive reinforcement would be more like you're driving down the highway and you go the speed limit and money rains down your car. <laughs> so you, you're going to, both are effective for learning actually. And the more, depending on who you talk to, there's less and less distinction between the two and both are kind of always in play. So if we are say withholding food or withholding water, then that animal is feeling pressure to obtain those things. And then when they obtain them, that pressure is going away. Um, but then it's also possibly positive in that they're getting those things that they want and need um, and that are reinforcing for them and that behavior. Um, it's not that any one quadrant doesn't work. They all work. That's why they're all <laughs> on there, even positive punishment. Um, applying of an aversive to stop a behavior can work. One way I would describe um, the difference between positive and negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement is adding something that they want to increase the behavior. Negative reinforcement is presenting something they want to avoid to increase behavior. So negative reinforcement, a function of negative reinforcement, or an example of it would be um, if you want your dog to sit, and you put pressure on their butt to get them to sit, what they're doing is they're avoiding the pressure, whether it's uncomfortable or they just want to, or they it's become a cue or anything like that. What they're doing is they're avoiding that pressure by sitting down. So you just increase their behavior of um, sitting down by pressing on them. So you're giving them something they don't want, um, but it's making their behavior happen more frequently. So is there a reason that you two choose to focus mostly on positive reinforcement? So the, the science has, <laughs> Thumbs up um, for has science. shown, yeah, uh, has shown um, dramatically that um, positive reinforcement is the, um, not only is causes the least amount of distress um, or, uh, or yeah, just stress on the animal or the person, because this works with people too. All behavior is in, in, if you took it down to the absolute basics, all behavior operates basically the same way. There's variation there, but um, we don't need to get into that moment. So if you're introducing something that the animal wants to go away, oh, right. right? Negative reinforcement, then like Peter is saying, um, you're more likely to get stress behaviors uh, and internal stress, you're more likely to get fear. Um, you're more likely to get aggression, right? Because they want that thing to go away. And so by only additively adding, only additively bringing things in, um, or trying to as much as we can, you're ideally avoiding a lot of that stress, a lot of that fear, 
a lot of those negative emotions, which I know emotions in reptiles is a little bit uncharted, um, but there's some stuff coming out now. And I think we're going to see more and more because they're not other and <laughs> their brains in some ways are really similar to birds and other animals. And so we're going to see a lot more because in other species, behavior and emotions have be, seem to be kind of inextricably can't talk <laughs> tied together um like you can't separate can't them separate them yeah and so when we say things like reptiles maybe they can think but they can't feel <laughs> well of course they can feel um because they're those two things are tied together and so that's why we tend to steer towards positive training um like i say if you get up into more academic circles there's a lot of discussion about how thin that line between positive and negative really is. Um, and maybe some of that will trickle down to the rest of us <laughs> eventually in a more um, understandable ways so that we can know how to thinly slice what we're doing and try to stay um, where scientifically it, it, training has shown to be the most effective and the, the, less the least stressful for the animal. For the learner and the teacher, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. And I mean, and if people are worried about attaching the word emotion to reptiles, which of course, that's a, a meme that goes around the internet all the time. We still know that there are certain neurotransmitters and hormones, you know, adrenaline and cortisol and things that are going to be flowing through their systems, just like we have that are absolute stress responses. And we know that would not be a great training environment if, if it was you. Like if, if I don't want to be under a training environment where I have adrenaline pumping through my system and, you know, cortisol spiking. Well, and, and, and um, when we, we do, we have the science to back this stuff up, um, the, from an emotional standpoint, we're still working on that with reptiles, but, but like, I don't know, I, I don't see a huge difference when I'm working with animals who we have proven they have, uh, emotion. Um, I don't see a huge difference in the behavior. Um, I actually find training some snakes very similar to training some birds. Um, but we do, we do have the science. We have the science that says, hey, this this kind of training um, is more ethical, does promote better welfare. Um, and uh, when it comes to positive reinforcement, and we also have learned that the alternate can be really damaging. Um, so the studies um, on punishment, um, which are kind of inherently unethical, unfortunately, um, that stuff is long lasting and it's not good. Um, I mean, you will see people come from situations where uh, they were in very toxic environments. They were, um, I mean, that stuff doesn't go away. Um, at least not without a lot of work. Um, and that work I would argue is more difficult currently with animals than, uh, than it is with people. Um, and so being, like that enough for me is like, let's avoid that. <laughs> can yeah. we, can we stop that? And, and I don't think that, um, like a lot of, I, I not with the same rate that I see in a lot of animals, but I say a lot of really, um, uh, a lot of really active positive punishment is, is happening. So, um, to describe positive punishment real quick, positive punishment, um, would be, it would be spanking your kid. Um, right. So you're trying to stop them from doing what they were doing by giving them something they didn't want. 
right? You're producing pain, which means they don't want, they don't want to do it. So they're going to stop that behavior theoretically, if it's actually functioning as punishment. Um, so, so I don't see that as dramatically as I see in some cases, I tend to see more, uh, my, my larger concern when it comes to the reptile, um, stuff that is happening that we're working on um, is more deprivation um, in terms of, and I don't even mean that super aggressively. I just mean like literal, you don't have this thing um, rather than seeing super active positive punishment. Like I see with birds, like I see with dogs, like I see with uh, a lot of other creatures. Um, so, yeah. So let's think, jump. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Carrie. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think for me, probably the biggest motivator to try to use the most positive methods is because I like to see the widest diversity of behavior and I see animals being more creative mm -hmm. and more free to offer new behaviors that they haven't offered before when there's less risk of an aversive or when they're not trying to avoid something. Well, it makes sense. You, you would, if they're in that sort of exploratory curiosity mode, you're more likely to see some creative behaviors rather than a fear, stress-driven behaviors. So let, let's jump into some of these now that we can relate it back to reptiles, because I guess the, the simple question is why does this type of training work on reptiles? Is there, is, the, is there an answer to that question or is that just too broad of a question? I think it works. It the reason it works on reptiles is the same reason it works on anything else. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and 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 on some level, I think um, I try not. I I don't super necessarily entertain the thought of why. I just entertain the thought of it does. <laughs> it's animal training. And reptiles it's animal are training, right? That's the thing. And one thing we say in reptelligence a whole lot is reptiles are not other. We don't need to, we don't need to train them differently. Um, uh, we also tend to say um, when I'm getting super bird geeky, um, we also say like birds are not other, right? So one of the things that's pretty prevalent in the bird training uh, community, um, unfortunately, in my opinion, um, is, is food deprivation, right? So, so, not feeding them as much in order to get more behavior out of them. Um, so let's say your bird doesn't come when called, so you don't feed it as much. It's going to come more when called the next day because it's hungrier. Right. So um, I just, I just, I just don't want to do that kind of thing. I want to avoid that as much as possible. I think for me, like I, I really try to focus on behavior as function. So from an evolutionary perspective, we have evolved certain adaptations to behave in certain ways. And from approximate, from an immediate standpoint, we have developed behaviors to help mm -hmm. us survive and live in certain ways. And when we're taking these, I mean, we can look at it for our own selves as humans, but also as animals, if we're taking animals out of a native habitat where they can perform all of the behaviors that they have adapted and evolved to behave um, and do, giving them an opportunity to do that in human care can be challenging, especially with where care and husbandry is. We can't just jump, you know, a hundred years into the future and have, you know, giant enclosures and uh, all uh, basically a small 
native habitat for them, uh, that would be great. But I think what where I see a lot of the disconnect between um, when people hear enrichment and training, um, where we tend to rub kind of together is with using non-natural things. But I just find non-natural things as another way to get behavior, just like training is another way to get behavior. They're all ways to get behavior. And so as far as why, why train them? Well, because it gives them more avenues to behave, <laughs> more, more different, more diversity. Peter, you look like you want to say something. <laughs> it just reminded me of something that happened recently. <laughs> well, that, I, 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 I was going to bring that up in a roundabout way. We don't have to discuss that exact situation, but Peter and I have we sort can. of had conversations privately about this. I, I'm really amazed at the aggressive backlash that people, people who are working with animal or reptiles specifically to training them. It's this very strange backlash. It's like, you can see how offended people are and there's, they, they don't have any grounds to say you're not caring for them properly. So they just attack it by saying it's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, they do. <laughs> what is um, with that? <laughs> I, I wish I had the answer to that um, because maybe then I could address it more actively. Um, so the, the most, the more specific um, situation that happened recently uh, is um, so I am a like, right. I think as with a lot of reptile keepers, like we are, we're working on a shoestring, right? Like we don't have the bank to like, do everything that we might want to. So I, uh, I use a lot of things that I just kind of have around the house. Right. So like my snakes really love cereal boxes. So why not? Like, you know, I make sure there's no staple or ex staples or excessive tape or whatever in them. Right. So things that can, that I would be concerned about injuring them. But, uh, these are totally things that, that, um, like that are, that are, they're enjoying them. They're, they're, they're expressing more behavioral diversity. Um, it might not be like the log that they would climb into in the wild, but I don't have that log that they're climbing into the wild. So I'm going to do the best thing I can. Um, and so for my carpet python, this was specifically about my carpet python enclosure. Um, first off, like I would argue that this person was not coming from a, a large base of information based on what I was trying to do. Um, I'm not saying they didn't know anything about reptile keeping. I'm just saying that they weren't coming from a, a, a place of education in response in according to my goals, right? Um, or the reasons I do these things. So basically, um, I <laughs> specifically <laughs> um, on uh, an Instagram comment was uh, called some pretty um, uh, nasty things uh, by an individual who um, felt that uh, I was very stupid and an idiot and should not have animals um, because I have um, basically a few um, like plastic man-made things in my carpet pythons enclosure. Um, the video actually was focused on the fact that he was target training, um, but uh, based on the response, um, I it seemed to be focused mostly on the fact that I actually have a, I have a kind of an orb dog toy hanging and he uses that a lot. He basks on it. He climbs through it. He does all this stuff. I have a little hamster tube in the back that he spends time in. Um, I also have a lot of leaf litter. I have natural substrate. I have branches. Um, I, and I think he might've felt this way about this too, but I, I he's super arboreal. Um, even though I provide him, um, with a lot of, 
uh, terrestrial um, things. He's super arboreal. And so the hides he used the most are actually hanging coconuts um, that are designed for birds, but they work for him. He uses them. They create behavioral diversity. So I don't understand why I was so viciously attacked by this person. And um, one of the things he said is, I'm screenshotting this and I'm putting you on blast. And I was so confused. And, and it turns out that someone else joined in. Um, and uh, before I just like couldn't deal with it and decided to block them because I was like, this is not productive. I'm not going to get through to this person. This is just not making me like, this isn't making me feel jazzed or happy about what I'm doing. And I still believe in what I'm doing. Um, someone else commented and then screenshotted <laughs> my post and then shared it on their page. And, um, and what, to be frank, uh, they were like, they tagged all these other people and they were telling me about all these people who were like, this person's going to disagree with you and they've seen them in the wild and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And some of them were actually people I knew who I had discussed some of this stuff with. And I was like, oh, I think they're okay with it. Um, and uh, they screenshotted and to be completely honest, my favorite part was that um, when they screenshotted it and posted it, the first comment on it was, wow, that's a really great idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I, I saw that. I saw that. It made me really happy. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. So we we get into that. Joe posted a thing and someone was like, um, was literally like, look at this more stupid shit snake training. Um, another one was, oh, well, clearly you scented the target. And I'm like, why do you think that we're trying to lie? Like, why do you think that we're like, why do you think that we're like being fake? What do we get from that? Exactly. That's why I find so bizarre about the reaction is like, there's, if if there, even if there's a tiny fraction of learning, it would be really cool. If there's it's a strange to just push it back completely. And just to define this a little bit better, every other pet in the pet industry has. I mean, the, even reptiles have fake plastic toys. It just looks like a log rather than <laughs> than a you know a hamster tube or something. And we want other animals to be engaged in other objects. And then we have the other side of the hobby that keeps their animals in plain tubs with absolutely nothing. And somehow that is more acceptable than enriching them with plastic toys that you can clean and you know you make sure their snakes aren't going to get stuck in them or anything. I mean, the tub is plastic, isn't it? <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah, it's it's very strange. So I do really think it's it's just a new, it's just new and people are offended by it right now. And whatever, I think as reptelligence continues to grow and you guys continue to show how, how amazing these animals are and how amazing they can learn or sort of the ability for them to learn, it will just become more accepted. And I think just right now it's, there's pushback. That's the because plan. People, yeah. So that's all. So let's, let's talk about specifically reptiles and, and how this, I think there's at least two or three things that I think can be very helpful for people. One would be, understanding not uh, rewards. Rewards are not necessarily food. So maybe one of you could jump on and discuss rewards in, in snakes, for example. Doesn't It's not always a food reward like we might see with your dog or your bird. Yeah, there's there's a wide range of things you can use just like with any, um, any species or, or type of animal. Um, heat, cover, excess, uh, textures, scents. I mean, if we're looking at at reptiles, I think one of the important things to realize or with any animal that we're trying to train that we have in front of us is how do they see the world? Can't see my air quotes because I can't, I don't have video, but um, <laughs> how do they see, right? So we come in with this visual bias, right? So 
we might put something in the habitat or near our animal and they don't like it and we think, oh, well, there's nothing scary about that. That's an apple. Well, what does that apple smell like? Where did it come from? Um, what does it feel like? Is it cold? Um, and so kind of trying to think sensory wise, what is this animal sensing primarily? And then what are the secondary senses when we're introducing something? And that will kind of help us find that, that, that learners needs and wants. Um, for crate training, I use a lot of, I guess, what Peter would consider baiting. <laughs> so I tend to put uh, objects that are interesting into that, uh, whatever I want them to shift into. And I that, do it too. that becomes not only the motivator for that behavior, but also the reinforcer for that behavior, um, being able to interact with those items in different ways. And it kind of becomes too where you don't need those things anymore. They go into that just to see if there might be something. Um, for example, uh, Magnolia, the, the Wilma Python, who's been doing stuff since she was probably four months out of the egg. Uh, when I uh, acquired her, uh, she if you give her anything, she's like, oh, what's that? Let me inspect uh -huh. that. And I think we don't think about that as much. A lot of times with with reptiles, we, we have potentially kept them in somewhat of a deprived environment, not intentionally, but maybe because that's what we were told. This is what they need. They need this light, this rock, this cave. And if you want, you can throw some plants in there. Um, that's really the, you know, what a lot of us are told and that's perfectly um, understandable that that's, but when we start to offer them more things, um, then we start to get curiosity and interest. And once you have behavior, it's a lot easier to shape behavior. So um, I like to introduce things like, like heat, different types of hides, different textures, different objects, see how they interact with them and then use those both to motivate behavior so to get them moving and then shape it using it as a reinforcer. Um, so it's not always, I mean, with a lizard, it's going to be easier to use food as a reward. But I think that's where people get hung up as they assume, you know, training your dog, you need dog treats. But with with snakes, I'm sure this is with the with true with dogs as well, but specifically with snakes. If, well, if anyone wants to listen to how you can target train with food, that was in the first episode that Peter and I did, episode number 27. And that's possible as well. But really, that's just one way that a snake can be reinforced. Yeah, and I found access, and Peter and I were just actually having this conversation recently in kind of exploring escape behavior a little bit more, and what does that really mean when an animal's saying no, and how can we get clearer and seeing when they're saying no, um, but having access, having the ability to say no, I found to be absolutely huge, um, and it may be because a lot of times these smaller animals and a lot of us are working with smaller I mean not most of most of us are not training Komodo dragons and crocodiles and Burmese pythons some of us are and that's really cool but we're not always and even when we're we do a lot of times we're working with them from when they're really small and they're uh -huh. kind of conditioned that we're the stronger one and so giving that animal the ability to say no I found to be extremely powerful and there have been some studies with children and other species um children and other species that's a funny sentence to say out loud. um uh, that just the ability to say no like a, a living thing will will test it out they'll try it and if once they have the ability to say no their uh, occurrence of saying yes increases just by having that no honored um so that can look different ways with reptiles a lot of it's starting to learn 
to understand the body language and see what they're telling us. But also if they're avoiding and choosing to go away, it's pretty clear a lot of times that, hey, I'm not choosing to interact right now. Um, and that could be a huge, we might feel like a failure of that particular session. But when you come back for the next session, a lot of times you can have stronger behavior if you honor mm-hmm. that no. And especially with snakes and lizards where we've kind of been taught, pick it up and, and hold it. And eventually it'll get used to you and you'll be fine. Right. And so we've kind of learned not to listen because then they're going to never be tame. You'll never be able to cuddle them and it'll be all your fault. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of turning it uh, upside down a little bit and realizing that that can actually be a motivator and a reinforcer for the behavior that you want to get without doing a whole lot else. Just kind of, of honoring those those subtle cues. Right. And yeah, and it sort of relates to two other really key points that people can use when they're approaching their animals now. So one, you've kind of touched on both. One is just the the importance of giving the animal choice. And the other is reading their body language. So maybe Peter, maybe you could just chat about that in, in terms of when you're looking at a snake, how do you, yeah. why is it important to give them choice? And then what are some cues you can use to sort of in, in the course we took talking about red, yellow, green zone, body, uh, sort of uh, body language. Yeah. Um, first, I want to mention in the non-food reinforcers with Mags, um, Carrie did an amazing job. Um, Mags lives with me right now. She's the woman python. Um, she, uh, I was with the sliding doors, I was vacuuming out the dirt that gets in between it. And she literally came to the front of the enclosure. And I was like, I mean, I've got a vacuum. I would assume that would be aversive. <laughs> oh, well. And she literally stick her, stuck her nose in it and just like sat there for a bit, let go. And then, or like, moved away and then went back into her hide. And I'm like, okay. That's awesome. <laughs> I thought it was really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Carrie did a, a really good job explaining kind of why um, or like the benefits of, of not um, pushing animals past their um, uh, stress threshold. Um, but in terms of ways to know whether you're doing that or not, um, I actually have a video last night um, or I, for the uh, a couple days ago, I was feeding my um, baby Brazilian rainbow boa, um, and she, I was like watching her behavior, and I've slowly been working with her. She's a little um, runty, and so I've mostly just been concerned about like getting her weight up and making sure she's eating really well. And overall, she's really, really good, and she's doing she's doing really well, and I'm really happy about it. Um, but while I was offering, I offered her a target for the first time and just fed her in front of it to work on a little bit of classical conditioning type situation. And, um, what she ended up doing is as I moved the food to kind of get her going a little bit, I've been trying to move it less and less. Um, she, her head and her upper body stayed in the same position, but her back body started to kind of slither back into her, um, uh, cave. And so I stopped moving and then she stopped and then moved a little forward. So she didn't even fully, like, I didn't even have to get, I didn't let her get to the point where she completely like really quickly pulled all the way back into her hide um, and then hid there, right? I waited for this tiny little movement I saw in her back and I have a video of it um, that I'll be sharing. I have so much video I need to share right now Um, uh, of just like her little back, like scooting back into it and I stopped and then she stopped, right? So, So what that means is that she is now learning that I don't even have to do a whole lot of, you know, my bearded dragon doesn't have to open his mouth, turn black and, you know, hiss at me or, or anything like that, they can do this, like he can squint a little bit and I back off. Right. And, and, um, and so once they start to learn that, um, they get to the point where 
um, they don't do as drastic behavior. And they also learn that um, they don't have to do that drastic behavior because it's not going to, you know, get what they were. Um, it's, they don't have to do that to get what they feel they need. Um, in birds, we see it a lot um, in birds that like, have a lot of biting history, right? What happens is people push them so far that the only thing that got that hand to move away from them was making them bleed, right? So what then starts to happen <laughs> is they're like, well, nothing else works. So let me stop giving you all the other signs and just bite you. So now not only do you have um, a bird that's biting you, you have a bird that doesn't tell you it's about to bite you. And I think a lot of times that's what happens with reptiles, right? They, um, uh, uh, Carrie's got a story about it with a tegu. This tegu learned really well um, that, you know, puffing up, opening its mouth, hissing and running at you makes you leave. <laughs> it just skipped um, every other step and just went to level 10. Right. Yeah, you know, and I'm sure that she and every other animal would give you little tiny movements that said, hey, I'm not comfortable. Um, and, you know, to Carrie's point of we've kind of been taught to kind of ignore those things. We don't know what we're looking for, right? So we're looking, um, and that's one thing that we're talking a lot about and one of my favorite topics is like looking at, and especially like as a movement artist and a movement coach, I'm spending so much time. I mean, I'm looking for like little tiny, tiny muscle movements to make sure people's backs are engaged properly and all that kind of thing, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and so I get really nerdy about it because I'm like, but did you see that little thing they did and, and whatnot? And to be fair, like I spend a lot of time doing this. Um, and so I... I think I might get behavior a little quicker than people who are just first starting out um, just because I'm paying attention to tiny things. But and it's a positive um, feedback loop for you because you're so in tune with the animal's behaviors that you can reward them quickly. And all of a sudden yeah. the animal's going to learn faster as well. Totally. And that's, and that's the same thing where we were talking about the earlier, we were talking about the mouse and the, um, uh, the 10 second delay between the reinforcer and whatever. If the second she starts to do that little back movement back, I immediately stop moving she knows that's what happened. She knows that's what she did that changed my behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. They're just understanding the behavior that they exhibit, how it relates to the environment around them. And, you know, one of the things that I learned from the course with you guys that I, I for, I'm forgetting the definition, so you'll have to help me out with this. And it's something that I see all the time. And I guess I'll just call it the, you know, a Brian Barczyk you see all the time. You know, he he's a it's fine zoo and everything. And, and I know he gets a lot of hate as well. So I'm not going to go down that path. But one of the things I see them do all the time on that channel is with these little monitors, they pull them out of the cage and these things are freaking out and they're just running them in their hands. And they always say like, you just got to do this for like 30 or 40 seconds and eventually the animal will calm down. And there's a term that you, I had learned in the course that, that I've, that's just basically overwhelming flooding. flooding. That's right. Can you, can you explain <laughs> flooding? Just, this is a tangent. I didn't even uh, have this plan, but maybe you could just quickly explain flooding so people understand that that's not the animal just calming down. Carrie, do you want me to, or do you want, do you want to? Um, you can take flooding, but then I want to add something. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so flooding is the process of basically teaching them that no matter what they do, it won't work. Um, so, so it's actually kind of sad. <laughs> you know, when you, when you put it the way I just did, it does sound sad. <laughs> and if <laughs> yeah. that means that people are going to stop doing it, then I can make it even sadder. Um, yeah. <laughs> Here, let me punish that behavior real quick. Um, <laughs> um, I would rather reinforce the lack of that behavior, but or reinforce different behavior. But um, uh, so basically, what is happening is that as that lizard is moving through the hands, it's 
it's learning, hey, my my goal of escape is not working. Um, and so so they eventually calm down. Um, but the thing is, they're not actually calm. They uh, are not moving. Um, and what you will see when you get kind of in tune to this stuff, you will actually see their muscles like tense up and engage. and and they're kind of waiting for any second to move. And what you'll see sometimes is you open up the enclosure and they leap out of your hand, right? What you'll also see sometimes is you open the enclosure and they just sit in your hand. That is sometimes interpreted as, oh, he wants to continue being held. Sometimes what it means is if I leave, I'm going to get picked up again. And sometimes the, the, the process of being chased around the cage or picked up or whatever, that's what they're trying to avoid. So now they're being negatively reinforced for staying on your hand. They are, they are, are, are staying on your hand, not moving to avoid being chased again. Yeah. So um, on the outside, it looks like, oh, look, it's nice and relaxed. It's calm now. But in their head, it's pure panic, basically. So right. The yeah. You hear a lot are desensitization and habituation. Um, the thing with, with habituation is that if an animal is so tired they can't move, which can happen easily, especially with young reptiles, if an animal is so stressed that they can't move or they're, they're, they are so overwhelmed that they're having to start to tune out some stimuli just to not go into shock and to basically survive, that's not habituation. <laughs> habituation <laughs> is learning that something is not scary uh, because it, it's not relevant to you. Hands are still very relevant in that situation. In fact, they're still probably going to try to avoid them as much as possible, but you've, you've ended up in a different, an entirely different scenario. So you can have it where they give up because they realize they can't do anything. You can have it that they give up because they're too cold to do anything, which mm -hmm. happens a lot with reptiles, which um, is, a, a, is probably something we should be talking about more. Mm -hmm. And you can have it where they physically can't move anymore for whatever reason. Um, and like Peter touched on, you're not changing the internal state. So I think that's something to be really mindful of. Sometimes we're seeing behavior issues in other areas. I think this is where it comes from where, oh, if, you're, if your reptile's not eating, don't handle them for a while. Or if they're um, showing stress in this way, don't handle them for a while. Or if their fecals aren't right or their shed's not right, we'll just give them time. Well, yeah, but maybe we can make the whole process less stressful so that those, um, those aren't such huge um, events where we're getting those strikes those strikes those spikes yeah. in 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 hormones um from from those events well and what that tells me too is this this like almost admittance that yeah handling them is stressful and i believe um at some point uh, it might have even been on one of your podcasts dylan um where there was mention of this study that said that um geckos uh i want to say leopard geckos were um when they were handled, they stopped breeding, they stopped doing all this kind of stuff. Um, the first thing that popped into my head is what were they, how were they handling them? Right. Were they, were they doing this thing, having them run through their hands? Were they um, just holding them until they got tired? Were they having them out so long that they cooled down and they couldn't move? Um, you know, I, 
I know in birds, um, there are birds who can go into full breeding mode. Not always. I have known birds that can go into full breeding mode, have babies in the nest box, and will still come over and take a treat or cuddle with you. Now, that's not often the case, um, but they don't necessarily, you know, if, I think if you were to handle them in a better way, they're not going to kill their babies. They're not going to, you know, do or, you know, stop feeding them or, or um, stop breeding altogether. Um, so I think that's one thing to keep in mind too. They also did a bearded dragon study with that and they found that the dragons who were handled <laughs> more, um, spent way less time basking, spent time, more time hiding and stuff like that. And I think that's one of the things when we get the whole term of, um, pet rock with ball pythons, I think they're being handled frequently and, um, non-choice based and they don't want to come out because they might get handled. Right. Yes. So yeah, th you have to distinguish between stress handling and choice-based handling. And if you want to handle your snake, you need to walk it through the process of it not being afraid of being handled, or you will get the pet rock sort of you know, the response totally. afterwards. So let's chat a little bit about some of the training that you two have done with the animals in your collection. I know, I think Peter has most of the animals, but both of you guys have done an incredible job training these different animals. Maybe each of you could pick one that is maybe your favorite story or, or favorite behavior that you've shaped. I think my favorite behavior was, and because again, not that this stuff was not happening, not that training was not happening around the world in various collections, but I hadn't seen a lot. So I think my favorite behavior that I shaped was that first time that Mags followed that target into the crate. I think that was a pretty pivotal moment for me just being able to suggest hey how about you going to crate and for her to go to that target and then continue into the crate as something that we had built in steps right so we had started introducing different objects then introducing the crate then introducing the target and trained it step by step and to see that all come together was a pretty amazing moment um, if I can give one more. <laughs> sure. And just, um, just to stay on that, that one for just another yeah. second, the, the target is, was it just the buoy on a stick or, or something on a, on a mm -hmm. stick for people who are, are, are listening and trying to visualize this. It basically, the snake is following an object into the crate. Yes. And I, for that, for that, I was using a rather large buoy. This is one of, this is, yeah, I would say this is the first snake I had introduced targeting to. Uh, since then I've used a range of objects. I've used fly swatters. Um, and some, kind of some flatter objects. Um, but in that we were using case, spatulas in the class, which I thought was spatulas, Um I was kind of preoccupied with, I didn't know what she was going to do. Are you going to strike the target? If so, I don't want something you can swallow. Um, mm -hmm. I think if I hadn't been so concerned, I could have gone with a different choice, but it did end up working fine. Um, I didn't get a lot of striking of the target. I got a little bit of striking with mechanics that we kind of worked out through working through the um, offering food in a tube type rather than from tongs and kind of experimenting with some different food delivery. Um, but yeah, it was just a regular buoy like you would use for horse training or dog training or seal training, um, any number of animals. There's lots of videos on intelligence of it. And the, the chances of, of this just happening by fluke is almost zero for anyone that, that's listening. You're, you're taking an animal from one place to another and you're asking it to follow this object. And so it, it would be tough for me to see, 
for someone to look at that and go, well, this is just a, a fluke that it followed it. Everybody who's listening probably has a snake and you know, like go put an object in your snake's enclosure. It's either going to strike it or it's not even going to care that it's there. And so this is a learned and trained behavior. Yeah. I, I guess I would say the third option is it's going to show curiosity. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a little bit to learn those subtle signs like Peter was talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, you're not going to get just the, they're going to follow the target stick. Uh, generally, I haven't, I don't think I've seen it. I can't say that I've seen it in any snake or any animal really so far. You might get one as a fluke, but then uh -huh. after that, it. they're kind of like, wait, what did I just do? Because again, uh -huh. behavior has function, right? So they're constantly trying to learn, like Peter, you were talking about with your um, rainbow boa. They're looking for what did I just do? And what, uh -huh. what did it get me? Uh -huh. Um, and that's the same for any anything, anything down to, I mean, the smallest organisms. I think they're trained. I've seen training of bees and butterflies and cockroaches. This is not is not as hugely controversial as it seems sometimes. Yeah, exactly. They have to navigate the natural world, so there must be some learning. And then your your second uh, favorite moment. Um, it was probably that I trained several snakes in a variety of different ways at the living desert, but probably one of my favorites was Jello, who's a corn snake. And typically with a corn snake, I mean, they're pretty small. They're considered pretty easy to handle a lot of times. A beginner snake, right? And so she had a lot, she kind of came to us with a lot. Um, she was a heavy, prolific, so she'd never been bred, but she would produce eggs multiple times a season. Um, she was not the best eater and we kind of took her, we gave her some downtime and then we kind of started just doing subtle things like we do with the rest of the snakes, start introducing novel objects, seeing how they react to them, then start offering some more opportunities. And probably the first, again, I mean, it's, it's creating, but when you're working with animals who you've, you've I mean, even in a, in an educational, zoo facility where you know these animals are doing so much good right so you're taking this animal out the the education experiences that people are taking away is phenomenal but sometimes you know that that, that animal doesn't want to be there i feel like a, i get shocked by lightning for saying that out loud but um, <laughs> you you know that that animal doesn't want to be there and especially if you have a closer relationship with that animal and you can see that 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 can be a little bit draining. So when Jello started coming out of the crate on her own for shows, when she started going up on that snake tree and coming down and putting herself back in that crate to go home and seeing other snakes do the same thing, it was just, it's just an amazing moment that you can offer that, that you can find a way to communicate with this animal that doesn't, you know, it doesn't even blink. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they don't have a lot to relate to with these animals. They don't have arms and legs. They don't have body language like dogs and cats. They don't close their eyes even. Um, but, and so you're really kind of looking at the most subtle things and to be able to start to see them make the active choice to do these things and not just sit there, not come out and just mm -hmm. sit there like they're in helplessness or um, afraid or they feel like they have to, but because there's reinforcers for them. There's sunshine, there's fresh air, there's uh -huh. things to smell, things to look at. I mean, it's just a, a phenomenal thing. And 
I, I think I've felt that way with, with most animals. Anytime that I can find that mode of communication to where that they can actively participate in something, it's just one of my favorite moments ever. And what about you, Peter? Do you have some uh, favorites? Yeah. Um, so I think in terms of, so Bruce, um, the reptiligence resident uh, Eastern Indigo snake, um, is probably my favorite snake to work with. Um, he and I work at the same speed. Um, and uh, if there's one thing I've learned training um, Credence, the bearded dragon, and most of the snakes I've worked with, um, is patience. And with Bruce, <laughs> that's not as big of a deal. <laughs> um, he swallows food so fast and he moves really quickly. And I'm used to training birds and he reminds me a lot of training crows. Um, cause they're very, very smart. They're very, very fast. And if you start slowing down, they start losing interest really quickly. Um, which depending on the animal you're working with can actually be kind of a dangerous situation. Um, and frustration, they get frustrated really quickly. Um, so he's probably my favorite to work with. I think I, I have two stories too. Um, one story uh, is Latoa, and I think I talked about this last time. Um, she's my Northern Mexican pine snake. Um, before I started working with Carrie and really getting into reptiligence, I had kind of resigned myself to the fact that um, she always hid, that um, every time I fed her, there was probably a 50% chance that she was gonna regurgitate it. Um, and that she would never eat food in front of me. Um, and if she did see me, there was even greater chance of her going to regurgitating it. Um, so, and I felt awful. And I was like, if there was some way for me to take this snake back into the wild, that's what I'm going to do. That's not possible. Um, and she probably wouldn't be successful either. Um, as far as I know, she's captive born. I don't know a whole lot about her history. Um, but, uh, I got her like, you know, 10 years ago. So I'm, I don't know what that, what, what imports were like 10 years ago in that situation. But, um, like from the first time I introduced puzzles from the first time I started doing targeting, obviously in those situations, she was eating in front of me and, um, she started to be more active. She started to show less stress behaviors. Um, I saw her out of the hide. She did in front of me. I haven't had her regurgitate in over a year. Um, you know, and, uh, I just, I just saw such a huge change in her to the point where like, I get like this snake that I like have had for, you know, 10 years have loved and, and all this stuff to finally see her, you know, behave like a snake and to have her welfare increase was just so dramatic for me and is a huge part of the reason that I was like, so this time last year I had, um, so November of last year, I only had Latoa, um, my snake. Um, December, I got my bearded dragon. And so last year, this time, I only had a snake and a bearded dragon. In my house now, I have five snakes, two tarantulas, um, a tortoise, and a lizard. And um, so it, it happened really fast, right? But Latoa was a huge spark for that, was I was like, I need to know more about this. I want to learn more. Um, I want to do this with more creatures. So that was a huge thing. The other favorite reptile-related learning experience I've had is actually teaching the class that you were a part of. Um, so uh, 
September, we ran an eight week course that we've mentioned a little bit in the podcast um, called uh, Foundations in Snake Training um, through Reptelligence. And Carrie and I were the teachers. And uh, we had 20 auditors, and then we had 12 participants um, from all over the world, um, which was really, really, really cool. Um, and we had multiple people working with venomous snakes. Um, we had you working with, um, your carpet python and boa. Um, and, uh, it was just, it was such an amazing experience for me. Um, and the, probably the most reinforcing part of it was one, seeing people just get excited about this kind of thing and all the amazing questions that we got, but also, watching people's homework and stuff. Um, Stephanie Studer did a really amazing, um, amazing job uh, with this garter snake that she's been working with at the nature, nature center that she works at. Um, watching that garter snake like explore a tub for the first time was amazing, <laughs> right? And, and watching her sensitivity to her, to his behavior was great to start out with. And then it started to even improve, right? And, uh, so it was just so cool to see. And then uh, seeing Veronica work with her um, uh, tiger snake um, in Australia, venomous snake, having her train the snake on her kitchen table, right? And have beauty like learn and behave. And she's an educator as well. And I'm so excited that she has more information and um, is going to be applying this to her educational opportunities and stuff. So yeah, it was just really reinforcing for me and has really made me want to teach more, <laughs> um, be, which is positive reinforcement. I got something for it that I wanted and now I'm doing the behavior more, right? So I've been positively reinforced by that whole behavior and I'm so glad that you got to be a part of it as well. Oh, I was super grateful to be a part of it. And, and just for those listening, it was basically a six week course. I think you mentioned that. And every Sunday there was a lecture either live or if you couldn't be there live, you, you could rewatch it throughout the week. And then we had a little homework assignment each week and getting to work with the animals. And it was it was amazing. I learned a ton and, and sort of both of your stories sort of relate to why I enjoyed it so much is one kind of what Carrie was saying. It does give you almost a deeper bond with the animal because you are communicating in them in a way that you never did before. And, and then, and then like you were saying, Peter, it gives you so much patience and as well as increases the behavior of the animal, which is what you want. We want to see them behaving how they do in the, in the, in nature and teaching them to, to, add more behavior to the repertoire was, was really interesting. So it was a fantastic course and uh, I, I can't wait to so see how it all evolves uh, in the future. There's, there's something else I was going to say about it. Once I just, let me check my, uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. So, so there was two, two really main, two, I would say massive learning experiences that I had in the course. One, as I mentioned is the patience and you had mentioned that as well is it, you have to be patient. You can't just go, uh, I'm going to train this, this, uh, snake for 10 minutes here. You need to put aside a good chunk of time and be patient <laughs> with the animal and be very observant and, and just be there with the animal. So, and that and, gets quicker as time goes on. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and yes, yeah, so, and, and as you get better, you'll be, you'll be able to sort of pick up on the behaviors faster. And the other thing that made me realize is I have too many animals really to do all that with. I mean, <laughs> like, and people that have, uh, giant collections of 30 or 40 animals, you could never work with each one individually to the extent that is possible. And that's what really hit home for me. It's like, I, I have four snakes and that's as much as I would ever want at this point, because I do want to work with them individually. And you could never do that if you have too many. Not with a job. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah not with okay. a job. Yeah. You definitely did that at zoological facilities, but that's your job, right? So you, 
but even in that case, a lot of times with, with reptile collections, right, the reason we, not the reason, but part of the reason we have larger reptile collections is traditionally they're supposed to take less time, right? Less maintenance, less husbandry, less feeding, less of everything. And so um, there are ways to kind of strategically make time. The, the more you um, set up antecedents arrangements and kind of plug things in so you can start behaviors and then, you know, do something at the same time. And then like a, a lot of times, um, Peter will call me and he has the snakes out and they're going through their enrichment setups and um, they're, 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 they're having time outside of the habitat, but they can do other things at the same time. So there, there are ways to kind of start to fit it in, but yeah, it's definitely something to start to consider um, because it kind of changes uh, mm -hmm. in some ways how we've, we've interacted with these animals in the past. And I think one of the things that I'm, I think I maybe mentioned in the last podcast, Peter and I did, and I'll mention it again, cause it's pretty important. Obviously the animals that you have, you guys have in your care there, they've been worked with by you guys who are very, you know, you're, you're highly trained animal trainers, we'll say. And oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> so we can't expect to be hit those levels of a behavior right away, but just the implication of knowing that you can do that with an animal is huge over the whole reptile industry in general, knowing that you can target train a snake. Maybe my snake is not target trained yet, but knowing that it's possible, the fact, I mean, the chances of that just being a one-off thing are very, is almost impossible. You have several snakes that are target trained and doing all these different behaviors that we would conventionally think aren't possible. The implications are incredibly huge, especially in this industrial world that we're in right now with the racking systems and whatnot, all of a sudden that looks hugely wrong. It, it certainly makes you think more. And I think um, some of like the, like we discussed the, the pushback that um, we've received, um, I think whether conscious or not, I think that if I were to put myself in their position um, or in the position of the people who have, you know, had chosen, chosen to express that, those feelings to me, um, <laughs> to us, uh, is that it's, there might be some, some concern or, or, you know, like fear around, I mean, almost admitting that they can do this, that they do need this, that this is important for them. Um, because then that means you probably can't have 50 snakes in a room, right? Like if they all have like enclosures, they can reach rectilinear positioning and, um, you, uh, let them out in terms of like, um, and I'm not talking, you know, we're not talking about our snakes sitting on our kitchen counter while we make food, right? Like we're not, you know, but that's not, I don't even let my birds do that. Right. So like, you know, but, but we can, we can still expand their environment without sacrificing every room in our house to them, which would be great. But even then I'd probably try to let them out. More. <laughs> um, but, but, and that's one thing, you know, and so I, so I think there's some fear around, um, this, like this, and I like your term and that it is kind of this industrialized concept, right. Of becoming a, a breeder of an animal, um, which I don't think is inherently bad. Um, but I think one of the ways to certainly make money doing it is to have like a large collection, have a lot of projects going on, put a lot of effort into it. And that, like, especially from a money standpoint is not realistic for most people, um, which I totally understand. Um, and I also like, to be completely honest, uh, I have a lot of animals, like a lot of animals. <laughs> okay. And, um, like I could go through the list if you wanted, but let's, that's for another time I expect. Um, like 
I don't do everything I want to with every single one of my animals. And that's something I really consider. And one of my weaknesses is like, oh, but this spider was, I wanted it, right? Like, you know, so, and and so certainly like, I just removed my, moved my room around to make um, space for my new tortoise enclosure. And I'm thinking about going down to a twin size so I can fit an even bigger one in, right? Like twin size bed, right? So, so there's that aspect. And, and the other thing too, is you were talking about like, um, you know, you don't have to be the super like, like skilled trainer or whatever. Thing is too, is like, um, Susan Friedman said to me the other day, if you want to train, train, if you want to do the science, do the science, right? Like do, do you act, do you really care how clean your targeting is or do you want them to get into a box so you can clean their enclosure? Right? Like, do 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 whatever works for you and is going to make the most sense for you to do right um yeah it doesn't have to be crazy yeah exactly if you want your snake to come out if yeah tailor um you know the right animal for the right job right so if you want your animal to cuddle with you and or you know spend time with you on you or whatever, that might take some more of this concept, right? This might take more time, more effort, more classes, um, you know, uh, to, 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 to get there. But if you just really want to enjoy your snake, enjoy your snake and do what you can to make their lives better. Um, and you don't have to get crazy about it like we do. <laughs> yeah. You can just do that. I mean, you can look at dogs for an example. You have dogs that can sit and go outside to go to the bathroom and you have dogs that can be trained to, you know, help a visually impaired person. So you have a whole spectrum, but it would yeah. be really weird to say, I'm going to get a dog, but I'm not going to train it at all. Right. Which I guess probably does happen, but it, it sounds a lot weirder to say <laughs> than with, with, yeah, exactly. It, it, it definitely does happen, but typically you're going to go through your very, very basics. And, and that's kind of all we would be expecting here is just knowing that you can train a dog to help a visually impaired person walk down the street me it almost seems unethical to not at least teach it to go to the bathroom outside type thing. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Well, and, and, and quickly, um, I don't mean to monopolize this real quick, but one thing I did want to mention too, is that, um, I do not train my snakes every day. I don't train my tortoise or bearded dragon every single day. Um, especially the snakes from like a, just a feeding standpoint. Um, uh, you know, I don't let the snakes, uh, or, or have the snakes give them box of stuff where they climb around and stuff. I don't do that every day. Um, Bruce, I tend to do it most because he's really, really good about it. And he like wants to do it. Like he will, he will like trace the front of his enclosure until I let him out. And then he climbs out, plays for a while, interacts with all this different stuff and then takes himself back in. Right. And so, so you can do that. Like, and like Carrie was saying, I can sit on the computer and work on some computer work and just check on him every once in a while and look over here. He's having a good time. If I want to sit with him, I can sit with him. Right. So it's, it's not, you know, if I have a bird out, I'm probably more likely to be queuing it on them the whole time in a way I find reptiles much more, um, when it comes to training or whatever, I find them much more, much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. I think so some of the, the, the two main things I look at, for me when I'm looking at setting up training because some of us I'm I'm sure are coming from a place where we already have a lot of animals right so now we're going well what am I going to do with this because mm -hmm. I don't want to get rid of all my animals um so the two things that I look at personally after you know working in zoo collections and having quite a few animals at home like Peter um I look at how can I make their environment the least stressful and for some that's going to be training for some that's going to be doing other things um, mm -hmm. changing the habitat, changing other things in the environment. 
uh, offering novel objects or, or, or things that they can interact with. And I look at, um, am I getting a full range of behavior? Are they able to do at least the majority of the behaviors that they would do in their native habitat? And that's really the measure that we use for other species. <laughs> I mean, for other types of animals, when we're looking at birds and mammals, is um, especially in a zoo environment, are they able to perform their behaviors? Um, and I think one of the things that I really look at with reptiles is sometimes we are told, well, you just put the heat in there and they can use it if they want to, right? But sometimes we're not looking at well, what do they need to actually feel comfortable being able to use that mm -hmm. thing, whether it's yeah. cover or access routes to escape or whatever the case may be. So I try to look at the full picture of can they use everything that they have? Am I getting the full range of behavior? And do I have the least amount of stress introduced as possible? And if there's any of those are lacking, that's where I put my focus and I start to assign priority. So some, some animals, honestly, that I've worked with have been fine with very little one-to-one -one time because mm -hmm. they're able to, I'm able to meet all those needs with doing less. And some are gonna require, you know, every other day or every day. Um, and so I think there are ways that we can assign priorities and start to kind of take baby steps to getting to this level without just saying, we need to get rid of all the bins and, you know, mm -hmm. people need to only have one snake. And I, I mean, I don't know what the future is gonna have for reptile care, but I think that there's it doesn't that doesn't have to be all or nothing. We can we can take some small small changes um, and build on that and see where what we learn through it too. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think this field is is going to grow and change as well. The science isn't, but the mechanics, <laughs> what we learn and how to do it and how to apply it um, and what these animals are really capable of. I think we have only touched you know the surface. Well, and, and, and I think of it in approximations, right? Like the same way I would like work with a snake, just looking at the target, moving towards the target, tongue flicking the target, right? I look at it the same way. What's the thing that I can do right now? And if that means, you know, to, to, to improve my care or this animal's um, welfare, if that means a cereal box, go for it. You know what I mean? Um, when it comes to tubs, you can offer um, uh, some olfactory enrichment, something that smells interesting. You can offer um, some some substrate at all or different substrate, or um, you can offer uh, another larger uh, water bowl or something like that. So there's there's ways to improve. Maybe, maybe you're not able to get to the point where your um, Burmese python is in a 30 foot by 30 foot enclosure, but we can make approximations towards that to, to help them and to, to get closer to that goal. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and both of you are sort of touching on my sort of the last question that I had was what are some things the listeners can do now, basically, what are some things that they can implement today with their animals that would slowly allow them to work their way to, you know, enriching the lives of their animal and, and maybe starting some training processes. Go for it, Carrie. Yeah. I, mean, I forgot the, I forgot the I directive. We start with what some people consider a little bit boring is I always encourage you to just watch what your animal is doing right now before you implement anything. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> we haven't spent time doing that. Yeah, um, go maybe, watch your animals. We've, we've spent time with them when we're doing something. I'm going to change the water. I'm going to take them out. Um, we know what they do when we give them, when we put our hands in there or when we feed them. But do we have we just sat and watched how they use their space 
And so my very first thing is I look, I, and sometimes if you have an animal that is not behaving a lot, maybe you're not getting a lot of behavior for whatever reason, sometimes this can be a good time to set up a little camera as a time lapse, uh, if you have the ability to do that, or just observe it different times of the day. Try to watch, you know, three or four short sessions throughout the day and see if you can see at least places they've been, what they've used, you know, did they go get a drink of water? Are they using that basking? Are they using the cold side? What are they using? And once we've kind of identified what they're using, if they're using everything, well, that's the information too, right? Well, maybe we need something bigger. Maybe we need more. Um, what can I introduce to make the, the depth and the density of their space even better? If they're not using everything, well, I have my starting point, right? <laughs> okay. Well, they're not using this entire side of the habitat. So what can I do to get some behavior in this side of the habitat? Well, they're not using that entire hide. Why aren't they using that hide? You know, is it not uh -huh. low enough? Is it not high enough? Uh, is it too cold? Is it too hot? Do they only use it on Sundays? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to start to learn things about how they use their space. And that's really can start to inform how you start to change things. Now, like once I have all of that in place, then I would start to go towards um, training. And Peter and I diverge a little bit on this because I tend to go more environment heavy and they tend to go more, more training. <laughs> heavy and I think they're kind of both the same thing so we disagree sometimes but um <laughs> but then then I can start to assess too how much time do I have do do I want to start uh -huh. a huge training project do I want to start shaping targeting do I just want them to learn to shift themselves do I just want them to learn to use more of their foraging process instead of just a strike and a wrap do I want to see them you know following a scent trail do I want to see them opening something? Um, what behaviors do I want to get? And then that's kind of where I start. Can I get it through enrichment? Can I get it through training? What's my next step? So we kind of talked about flowcharts in our class, and we'll probably do that again because it's mm -hmm. a great way to start to visualize where you are and where you want to go um, and what mm -hmm. the possibilities are for, for how you could branch off from that. Um, so that would be my starting point. Awesome. That's pretty much what I was going to say. <laughs> um, but, you told uh, me to go first. No. <laughs> no, no. I think this is a great. You keep talking about how we disagreed. I feel like we agree on everything. <laughs> but um, okay. Um, so what I figured I'd actually show is this. Um, you don't have to be able to see it because you won't be able to read it anyway because my handwriting is chicken scratch. Um, so this is like pages and pages. This is my second book. Um, and this was this morning, um, of data I've taken um, of two of my snakes. Is and, that just observing uh, data? Yeah, so the way I, the way I do it um, is I write down the date, the time, where they are, and what they're doing. Um, so, and what that's done is it's actually, I can start to notice um, patterns, right? So I can now tell you with Sarabi, my Brazilian rainbow boa, um, if she is in her, if she is on the cool side of her enclosure, um, usually under moss, um, she, and I feed her over there or she ends up over there after I feed her, um, usually by the next day, she will be in the hot side of her enclosure, which I would assume is based on, is for digestive purposes. Um, and what's interesting is sometimes I'll feed her while she's in her hot side. She'll stay in there for a day and then immediately go to her cool side. Now, um, 
one thing is maybe it's not actually the temperature that's reinforcing. Maybe it's something about the way the hides are set up or something like that. Um, but I also like, now I can like see, okay, after I did this training, I got this behavior more frequently or, um, this is the time of day when she's most, most active. So I'm probably most likely to try and feed her on that time of day. Um, same thing with, uh, my baby carpet python. Um, and one of the ways that I know that he likes like arboreal hiding spots is because he spent so much time up in the top of his enclosure. Um, but I didn't really have any hides for him. And so I started to wonder, I'm like, okay, is, is he up there? Like, is there a way to make him even more comfortable up there? Like, is he up there just because he wants to be so bad out in the open? Um, and can I make him more comfortable? So what I did is I took those hanging coconuts and there's pictures um, of them and he uses them all the time. Like he's, and, and when I say all the time, I don't mean I never see him. I see him pretty frequently. Um, and I can also usually check and see which one he's in, but I have three ones in the hot side near the basking spot. One's in the cool ones in the middle and he uses all three of them. And I put different things in them to clutter them a little bit. So I'm like, packing paper, some sphagnum moss, and then one has um, toilet paper rolls. I just cut circle or cut the, I cut <laughs> and uh, filled one with there. He uses that one as well. And then he's got a cork underneath there and he'll spend time there and he's got this ladder and like, you know, um, and then I can go around with a temp gun and see how hot that area is or whatever. But all this like little information I take is actually really helpful for me. Um, and, and then I can find out, like, if I tried this new substrate, hey, it worked, or no, it didn't. Um, it encourages me to actually look at them more, too, um, which just from a simple care standpoint um, is really helpful. Um, you know, with my birds, like, I look at them all the time um, because they're always doing something. They're all, you know, they're talking, they're being loud, they're doing A, B, C, or D, which means I go over there and be like, oh, great, you should in your water bowl. Let me clean that, right? Like... <laughs> stuff like that. And I am more likely to see things like that because of, um, because of this that I was doing. And I actually, I ran out of a book, um, and hadn't found a book. And so I took like almost a week and a half off of taking, um, this writing, this stuff down and I got bored. I got kind of sad. And so I started doing it again and it just makes me really happy. I usually take data about three or four times a day and it takes like no time at all. Um, that's a really easy place for someone to start. Go pick up a notebook totally. and just start documenting the behaviors. Yeah. And I ended up putting it in my computer um, because then other people can read it. Um, but, you know, and I'll do like, I write like a little, um, like basically a key. So NV means non-visible, but I usually know where they are. But I just mean like, oh, you can't actually see them from this place. Or um, uh, I'll be like they're in the cork and in their enclosure, they only have this one cork and it's always on the hot side. Um, one that's kind of funny that I've been writing down a lot, um, is, um, hot cocoa, <laughs> which stands for he's in his coconut hide on the hot side of the enclosure. Right. Um, so you just get weird. Um, it's super fun. <laughs> um, and then I'll write down, Oh, I moved all the enclosures to this side of the room. Let's see how that behavior changes it too. You know, um, in terms of other like little things they can do if people aren't super jazzed about taking data the whole time, um, you can um, 
add a different substrate or even like a little container of a different substrate, um, some leaves or something. Um, you have a, I think you have a video, you have a video on sanitizing branches and I think you might have one on leaves or something like that. Um, well, you must've been hacking into my hard drive cause I do have one filmed. It's just not out. <laughs> okay. Mm, I didn't, <laughs> but okay. Uh, <laughs> So, um, oh, and the other thing is like, I added UV recently for a couple of the snakes and, um, that's really cool. Um, and I really want to do more of that again, approximations. I'm slowly getting better. Um, and that changes what he basks, he hangs out under his UV and I love, that's really cool information for me. Um, you can offer like a little container of leaves. You can offer, um, my pine snake loves tubes. Um, I actually took one of the, the UV light bulb box that I got because it's nice and long. I put that in her enclosure. She uses it all the time. Um, uh, add a new branch, add something, anything new. I recently, um, I actually just the other day, put some uh, eucalyptus leaves in, um, which smell to me amazing. Maybe they don't like the smell, but I like put a little bit in there. So that's just something new. Um, Bruce, especially the indigo, is super interested in checking new stuff out. I'll put something new in, and he usually comes out to see what I'm doing, and then I close the enclosure, and he's like moving it around, or you know. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of little different things you can do, um, and the same thing for when you know if you're still if your snakes are in tubs. There's totally things you can do to improve that, right? Um, maybe you could work on providing like a larger temp gradient or, um, or a more dramatic temp gradient or adding some substrate, um, changing the size of the water bowl. Who knows? I actually, with my, um, when I have water in Sarabi's enclosure, and this is a data, this is data I took. Um, I have a large bowl because she's a Brazilian rainbow. And so I want to increase the humidity as much as I can. Um, so I had a large bowl where she literally ties herself in a knot and just floats <laughs> That's and awesome. To, to the point where my roommate came in and like almost called me to tell me she thought my snake was dead. And, um, and she was also in the middle of a shed. So her eyes were glossy. And so my roommate was like, Oh my God, what am I going to tell Peter? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, she was, and I like, was like, no, she's totally fine. That's what she does. Um, and so, but what I did was I was interested, okay, what if I put something in, in the water? Is part of it because the smooth sides are smooth? Like is, would, would she feel more comfortable if I gave her a more option to hold on to something? Is she floating because she doesn't want to? So what I ended up doing is I actually have two bowls in there now. Um, and she tends to use the bowls more when she's going into shed, which is not surprising, but now it's something I can predict. Um, and so now I have two bowls in there, one to see if she wants the smaller one and one if she wants to use the larger one. Um, and I'm really excited to find out. And yeah. even if she decides she definitely prefers one, that might not, that doesn't mean I'm not ever going to provide the other one because maybe she'll change her mind, right? It just but, goes back to the choice, just giving them the choice. Exactly. And like, it's just, oh, I get so excited because like, I just love watching them do things. Like, uh, and I just want everyone to like, experience the joy that I've had going from Latoa who hid all the time and I never saw her to the snake who explores and moves and, and isn't afraid of me and actually will come towards me. And when I clean the enclosure, isn't sitting in the back tensed in a coil, shaking her tail. Right. I just want everyone to feel this. And you actually yeah. didn't like just force handle her at all to get there. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You didn't yeah. take her out. You didn't. No, I didn't flood her. Yeah. 
And, and the thing is too, is now if I have to, for some reason, I did have to with her once because I was worried she had a, a lump on her body. It turns out she didn't, which is good. I did. And I think we showed that video on the um, class um, where I was handling her in a way that I never wanted to handle her, but I had to, right? And I did it for as short as I quickly could. I was trying to, I, I still tried to respond to her behavior as much as I could. I put her back in a week later. She was still coming out and targeting and doing all of her behavior because she already had this really long learning history of positive interactions with me. So when I have to do something that I don't want to, or I have to do something that's more aversive, um, they like, they're going to bounce back better usually. And it's exactly. really cool that like we have all these options, right? Because I think, and maybe I think this happens throughout history, right? We sort of learn this is the way you do it. And you're told that this is the way you do it. And then you tell the next generation, this is how you do it. And yeah. it just becomes, that's your only option. And I think there's something exciting about having more options, even, even adding target training. That's not the only way to change behavior, even adding totally. voluntary shifting. That's not the only thing that we can do. One of the biggest things I think we've seen well, not the biggest because the data set is really small, but I'm really excited about it and want to pursue this more is seeing just chaining, changing the foraging process so that snakes are using more of their foraging behaviors in obtaining food has stopped. I think we're up to six snakes. Regurgitating. Yeah. yeah. And it just stops like it never happened again. It didn't become sporadic. It didn't mm -hmm. taper off. It just stopped just from. I mean, for for some that was introducing target training, for others that was just introducing a simple puzzle, maybe mm -hmm. getting their food out of a tube or a box that's mm -hmm. open. Something we would think is takes no cognitive ability at all, right? You smell the food, you go and get it. Still, they're feeling that pressure mm -hmm. of that object. They're having to learn how to navigate around that. Um, and for not for some reason, I, I have my theories on why this is true, but I want more data. So if anybody's mm -hmm. working on this, I would really love to hear from you. Yeah, I'm please. trying to think of ways that we can study this because I definitely don't just want to acquire a bunch of regurgitating snakes, although that might just be what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but um, how can, seeing that there's a relationship where these things don't seem to go together, maybe these are even snakes that are easily handled, that are curious, that are coming out, that we've offered a full range of bio habitat, they have huge enclosures, and they're still regurgitating. Mm -hmm. And then just making this change where now they're having to do something to get their food versus just taking off the tongue. Something about that is changing it to where they're not regurgitating. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And so well, there, I think we've only touched the tip of what we're going to, what we're going to learn uh, about. And I think, I think ball pythons would be a great, um, because you know, they have this stare, this, there's a stereotype of ball pythons going off of feed and, 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 behaving uh anorexically and i think that there's something to that and i also think that sometimes the way that when you're when you're working with tongue feeding and stuff like that sometimes i've seen people like tap the side of the snake i think that strike is initially at least fear-based and aggressive based and then there's food in their mouth so they swallow right but i wonder and like Carrie said, we need a lot more data on all this stuff, but I wonder if there was, if we do forging, if we do all this as opposed to, you know, the semi like a little bit more intrusive tongue feeding is, would that change that? Would we see less anorexia in snakes um, and, and any other reptiles too? So obviously our focus is mostly snakes because 
that's just what we've done the most of. Um, but uh, we're also trying to expand that more into like colonians because I love tortoises. Um, and if I had more room, time, and money, I would have a lot more than just one. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, but so we're we're hoping to expand it. Right now, our our most experience has been with snakes. Um, and I think on some level, I think snakes are the ones who have the most education to go in terms of this stuff because people have admitted, learned, and done research on the fact that crocodilians, colonians, lizards learn. Snakes has not been as prevalent. So yeah, yeah, they're still definitely the other in sort of the they're the other in the other category in a yeah, way. exactly reptiles are not other snakes are really not other <laughs> <laughs> that's right so i, I want to thank you both for of course spending the, the almost two hours with me here today but but <laughs> but especially adding this information to the reptile industry because this is new nobody's doing this There's, i mean i'm sure there are other people doing this as well but uh, you guys are are spearheading this and trailblazers in this avenue. So that is fantastic. I'm super excited to see how this is going to develop. And even though we've been talking for almost two hours, this is just scratching the surface about what you two have to offer in terms of the the knowledge that you guys have. So can you let everybody know the future of Reptelligence and where they can find more information? I know there's a, a future course coming up eventually, which I took and I highly recommend anybody that's interested in this, definitely take it. Cause as I said, this, this, we're just scratching the surface here. You will learn way more inside that six weeks uh, than we can, you know, talk in two hours about. First off, I would like to say thank you so much for, for having us and for, um, uh, I think messaging you on Instagram was a really great decision on my part, not going to lie. Um, Cause I'm really glad that we got, um, that we've gotten so much positive feedback and you've been so, especially, um, you know, we talked about some of the feedback that we do get is not always super constructive, like having your really positive feedback and, and interest and, and um, believing in us for doing what we're doing has been really, really helpful and really like refreshing and energizing. So we super appreciate that. And we've got a lot of people coming from, from listening to your stuff, which is great. My dad even started listening to your podcast. And his <laughs> reptiles. Awesome. Um, <laughs> Shout out to your dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Chris Topping, you're on YouTube. Um, you yeah. So thank you so much. Of course. Very good. And, and can you, in terms of where people can find you guys online, I think it's very basic, but maybe you can, can let everybody know. And then is there right now, I know the, the next course is in the works. Is there any information that can be divulged about that? Or is it still sort of in the early stages? We're still really talking about it. Um, and, uh, it was nice to kind of take a decompress after the last course and to really kind of evaluate what we did. Um, and it was a lot of energy, but I think we both really, really enjoyed it. Um, so uh, we've got, we, we think we're going to run um, a similar course again. Um, so another foundations and snake training course. Again, this is all super preliminary. Um, but uh, we're talking about doing that. And then we're also have a um, more enrichment and um, like uh, non-food reinforcer based webinar coming up. So a shorter one. Um, and just kind of as a teaser, cause we do talk about that in the course too. We don't just talk about, um, the operant conditioning side of things. We do talk about, um, enrichment and whatnot. Um, yeah, so we're, we're looking at that. Um, it looks like we're hopefully going to be speaking in a few places and, um, teaching, um, some workshops, um, at a couple zoos, which would be awesome. Um, so yeah, that's what we're working on. And even just the Reptelligence Facebook group has tons of information and people from all over the world are inputting the stuff that they're doing so you can see what other people are up to and get ideas. So really, it's an endless amount of material online. Yeah, we've got our Facebook page, Reptelligence. 
Um, and then we also have the, the group reptile enrichment and training, um, RET, RET. Um, our Instagram is, uh, reptile intelligence. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we need way more followers. So if you are interested in that, that would be super cool. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm thinking about opening a Tumblr, but I'm just trying to think about like how much time I have to spend on my phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Peter is really awesome and handles the majority of our social media. Um, so they've been doing a super awesome job, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. There, there's always awesome content on there. And, and, uh, and sometimes you'll see the people that are angry, which can be entertaining as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I, I do end up blocking them and deleting their comments just because I don't think it's productive and I don't like reinforcing behavior. I don't like, <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. There's uh, there's really no need for it. And that, like but I said, if I you're on there often enough, <laughs> you, you will see it once in a while. But as I said, we are in the early stages of this and uh, I think there's so much more to come. So thank you guys both for coming on. I really appreciate it. I had a blast chatting with you. I think again, this is a, a record length of a podcast. I think this is a, a new record. So that was fantastic. And uh, is there anything left unsaid that you would like to say that we didn't cover or has all been said? I mean, that's impossible, but Carrie. <laughs> um, well, thank you again, just to echo what Peter said. Thank you for having us. This has been awesome. It doesn't feel like it's been two hours. Yeah, like we could talk about this even more but um i think the biggest thing for me is i hope that everyone out there that's doing this stuff or even if you just start doing it um share what you're doing and if you if you're not comfortable sharing to the group you can you can reach out to, to myself i don't want to volunteer peter but i know he gets they get excited to see stuff too please do, please do. <laughs> we we are we're both uh just excited to see what 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 you're doing and um again if you feel shy it's okay reach out to us personally um but it, i think there's a lot of value to sharing the group um because we can all only get better from from um working with each other and dialoguing and uh we really try to foster a space that's inclusive and inviting and whatever your whatever level you feel like you're at um i know sometimes it, it, people will say that <laughs> i i have a lot of information i feel like a beginner i feel like mm -hmm. i gosh i don't know anything what am i even talking about um yeah. and so we can we can all have those feelings but if we can move past that and share i think the more that we can network the more we can just propel this field forward Absolutely. And of course, all the contact info will be in the show notes and the YouTube description. So it will be easy to find uh, everybody on there. Thank you guys very much. Yeah. Well, I'll also send you the um, link for the puzzle feeding article that we wrote. Um, yes, absolutely. Because that's a yeah. good way to get started as well. Yeah, I'll absolutely link to, link to that. It's a fantastic article. And, uh, and yeah, I think that this is fantastic. So thank you guys very much. Yes, thank you. All right, that is the end of another episode. Peter and Carrie, thank you so much for spending all that time with me. We definitely didn't plan on going for two hours, but it just kind of ended up happening, and I'm really glad we did. I know the listeners are going to appreciate this one. It's probably going to give them more questions and answers, which is exactly what we want. I want people to go and look further into this information. Reptelligence has a ton of information and tons of video clips on, on social media as or Facebook and Instagram. Everything will be in the show notes. So go explore and see what's out there in terms of this information. As we said in the episode, there is a lot of misconception 
when it comes to training reptiles. And it's almost, uh, especially when it comes to training snakes, a lot of people in the, in the industry who are definitely some maybe old school people tend to look down on this and frown upon it. And it, as we discussed in the episode, it's sort of a very bizarre reaction, but it's important to understand you know, you'd have to go back and listen to the entire episode. At not one point did Carrie or Peter anthropomorphize the animals they were discussing. There was no point where they were putting people or human feelings or, or human actions or human behaviors onto the animals. They did not do that once. And that's, I think, quite often what happens is people get offended because they think, oh, they're treating those snakes like other people or treating the snakes like dogs or something like that. They're actually not doing that. And if you think that's what they're doing, then you haven't actually spent enough time looking at it. And as Peter and Carrie said in the episode, the reason you can shape the behavior of a reptile and even a snake is the same reason you can do it with a bird or a dog or a cat or a rat or a mouse. The actual learning behavior is not that different. Now, every species, they're gonna be, there is going to be some differences and, and you're going to have to understand body language and behavior in different ways and as well as natural history. But we can't just write off reptiles and snakes completely because we don't seem to understand how they learn. They can learn. They have proven that to us. So now it's our job to do what we can to bring this into the reptile industry. I would like to thank the sponsor of today's episode, CustomReptileHabitats.com. Definitely go check them out. Links are in the show notes as well as the description on YouTube. And I will talk to you guys next episode.